Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 107, as both Robin and Tim had alluded to a moment ago as we uh, continue in our, our study of the Psalms, or our study in, of various Psalms this summer. I greatly appreciate the, the camper taking the lead on that this summer and taking the bulk of, uh, uh, of these messages, uh, that, and then the opportunity to share with others. Uh, we are so blessed to have um, a, a uh, let's say an abundance, but uh, an overabundance of, of capable uh, teachers of God's Word that uh, we've been able to utilize. We haven't even exhausted uh, those uh, connected uh, with our church yet this summer. Uh, and then as I have the opportunity to speak th this morning, uh, next week we have uh, a special opportunity to come and not only be fed in God's Word, but to encourage uh, a young man that will eventually send out of here begrudgingly. Uh, but Matthew Capone will preach for the first time uh, as he uh, begins his, uh, his public internship at that part. So uh, but be praying for Matthew as he comes because as capable as I have no doubt that he will be um, it sometimes is intimidating when you take the pulpit for the first time. Even if you've stood here a number of times, uh, I've seen uh, some very um, confident people uh, just shrink uh, for whatever the reasons at that point. I don't think that'll happen to Matthew, but be praying for Matthew this week and uh, as we come and just uh, rejoice in the opportunity we have to be fed by, uh, by this young man. Then I'll preach again, and then Camper will wrap us up in this series uh, on Labor Day weekend. Uh, with the last of the Psalms, and then we'll begin a new series after that. But this morning we have the opportunity to study Psalm 107, a psalm that I've been told multiple times this week of uh, how precious this is to, to many of you. I had uh, no idea uh, of that when I uh, had selected this several weeks ago, so I will uh, pray also that I can at least uh, do justice to the text to, to encourage and, uh, and to help us to, to benefit from it. So in order to do that, let's go to the Lord uh, that he would speak through me and maybe even despite me. Our Father, we do come to your word uh, in this hour. We thank you for the word that you have given to us that we may know who you are and not be left to our own speculations. We may also have our own weaknesses and frailties and insecurities pointed out to us so that we would not left to wonder or to worry about how we may relate to you. You've made it very clear, O oh Lord, that we relate to you on the basis of your goodness, your grace, and the love that has been poured out upon we who do not deserve it and yet have been blessed and, and truly been bathed in it. And I pray that on that basis of that love that you would free us from our fears, open our eyes that we may see where we still are in need to grow, and then by your word and by your spirit, fill us, feed us, nourish us so that we may die to our own sin and grow more and more to be like Jesus, who is not only an example to us, but by the Spirit of Christ is the very power that enables us to grow, to be like him. Lord, feed us, nourish us, strengthen us, change us, we pray, as we consider your word here this morning. I pray all of this in his precious name, Christ, who is the word incarnated. As Robin had pointed out, and we sang this morning uh, a little bit of uh, part of Fanny Crosby's story as she declares her story, uh, both poetry, so that we can even enter into her story, share part of her story. I want to ask you a, a simple question. If somebody was to come and ask, so what's your story? How would you respond? See, stories are very, very important. They're not simply means of entertainment, but they are very, very important in our culture. 
John Cotter, who's a professor of Harvard, an expert in leadership, in a, an article that he wrote uh, in 2006 for Forbes magazine, he said, over the years, I have become convinced that we learn best and we change from hearing stories that strike a chord with us. And similarly, in an article from Psychology Today, the author uh, made this point. He said, telling stories is the best way to teach and persuade and even to understand ourselves. Stories are, are not only entertaining and not only informative, but stories are important and stories are powerful. And so the driving question this morning as we consider this text is, what is your story? Well, how would you respond if somebody asked, to, uh, asked you what your story is? And it's particularly pertinent because Psalm 107 is an invitation. It's even more than an invitation. It's really it's an exhortation for Christians, those who belong to the Lord, to tell our stories. This psalm begins, and we'll work through the psalm rather than reading it all at once and going back, but we'll work our way through it. But the psalm begins with a, a theological statement. I'll give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And so it points our attention to our God in, in, in reminding us that we are to give thanks to the Lord because of who he is, because of the love that he has endowed us with. And so our minds are oriented toward God, but then it follows up with, with this instruction. Actually, it's a command. As we're thinking about who God is and what God has been revealed to be like, in verse 2 we're said, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. In other words, it's not enough for us to know this and to relate, as important as that is, but this passage is a command for all of whom have been redeemed to declare, to, to say that the Lord is good and why he is good. Now, when we consider this particular uh, exhortation, it should prompt a question within us, or maybe a couple of questions. The first one is this, is if it says, let the redeemed say so, well, then we ought to be asking ourselves, am I among the redeemed? Am I counted among those who have been redeemed? Uh, by uh, the means that God had appointed through the blood of Christ. And if we are among the redeemed, another question that would prompt us uh, that we should be asking ourselves is this, is what was I redeemed from? Now, we understand the word redemption. It's not one we use a whole lot in our, our culture anymore. It's really what happens when we use the coupons at the, at the store. It used to be years ago when I was very young. Some of you were perhaps a little bit older. Some of you weren't even thought of yet. Uh, but you would fill up stamps, fill up books with stamps, and you would take them and trade them in for stuff. I don't know if we needed the stuff or not, but vacuum cleaners, refrigerators, whatever it would possibly be. And they were, what's called, that was the redeeming. You would take them and you would redeem the coupons. They were something that was given in exchange to set free, to give you something. Now, if we are among the redeemed, it's because God has redeemed us. It's a constant, this, this phrase itself is a reminder to us of our, our common dilemma, our common situation, that all of us are afflicted uh, with the issue of, of sin. It has impacted all of us, separated all of humanity from God. Now, that itself is not redemption, but it, it, when we realize we're redeemed, we have to ask, why were we separated in the first place? Why was there need to be redeemed? redeemed? We had that problem. Now, some people try to deal with that by realizing that they're alienated from God, they're unworthy, and so they decide they're going to clean themselves up. They try hard. They follow, find the rules. They, they follow the rules. And they, others then isolate themselves. They decide that there are things that are bad. There are things that are good. I'm going to align with that which is good. I'm going to isolate myself from that which is bad. 
kind of secure it out, and then that way feel that we are secure. But it doesn't actually resolve the problem because our dilemma is within us. The idea that we somehow will be able to become good, somehow we'll be able to relate to God, somehow we will be in good shape if we just keep ourselves away from those things that are bad. It's somewhat like, you may have heard this before, somewhat like the old horror movies back in the, the 80s at the end of the movie when it seems to have already climaxed and the, usually the, the young uh, lady who is running from the evil, from a monster or from some hideous thing, finally escapes, gets inside of her house, shuts the door, locks it, bar bars the door, thinking that she's finally safe and because they want you to come back for the sequel, only you get a peek at the reality as while she is finally relaxing away from the thing, that the monster that she's running from is actually inside and she's now barricaded herself inside with the very thing that is threatening her. That's our lives as well. Because so many, our inclination, our natural inclination, when we realize that we don't measure up, usually to people's standards, and when we're reminded that we don't measure up to God's standard, is we're going to buck up, we're going to get better, and then we're going to isolate ourselves from the problem. Only problem with that is the problem is within us. And when we barricade ourselves from anything, doesn't resolve the problem, and we actually relax at the very time that we are most in danger. Sin still is at work. But the promise of the word redemption, those who have been redeemed, we're reminded that the good news of the gospel is while we're unable to rescue ourselves, it's God who does rescue us. He redeems us. He sends Christ. While there is no forgiveness of sin, there is no way that we can be set free except for the shed blood. That's the only thing that brings forgiveness of sin. God sent His Son, Jesus willingly came laid down his life for us, that all who God grants the ability to believe are now redeemed. His blood paid the penalty that was necessary to set us free. And so we ask that question, and we're reminded once again of, of what the gospel is. We are asked at the very beginning of this to think of who God is, and then are we among the redeemed? And if we're among the redeemed, we're to declare how good God is. We're to tell our own stories of how we know God is good, we're to tell our own stories of how God has redeemed us and what he has redeemed us from. And the bulk of the rest of this passage, there are four different stories, four distinct testimonies of how God has redeemed different people. They're basically poetic pictures of peril from which God has called the people to himself, set them free. And, and in this, he's painting a picture and showing us how God is at work, even, even in unusual uh, circumstances in life. And sometimes we're reminded in this that he uses those very circumstances to bring us to himself. And so what I want to do this morning is to look at those things, because as I look at this particular text, I think that the driving thing, there's really two things that we're compelled to do. The first is we need to know our own stories. And in this passage we see, beginning in verse 3, uh, the different kinds of stories. Verse 3, uh, we, we begin to find, uh, or in verse 4, we begin uh, to, to, to see that there are some who just wandered in the wilderness. Let me read beginning verse 4 through verse 9 as we, uh, we see the situation here. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous work to the children of man. 
for he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And so the picture here is of, of somebody who is wandering in the wilderness. I would think that most would have some mindset going back to the people of Israel as they were wandering, but it's distinct. It has certain characteristics. It doesn't necessarily mean only Israel. It's a common condition for a number of people. It really tells us of, of two types of conditions when you look at the descriptions, two things that are going on here. There are people who are, are, both, are lost, and there are people who are homeless. Because the picture talks about people wandering in, in the waste, and there's no way to find a city, some place where they can rest. And so they're constantly wandering, and they have no place where they can call home, no place where they can rest. Where they are, they know, is not home. You know, a few weeks ago when I was, had the opportunity to be and the Cherokee Indian Reservation, which is butts against the Smoky Mountains, I, um, I had heard, a, I saw in the newspaper that, um, once again, it happens most years, every once in a while, there was a, a, a boy, he was probably 11 or 12 years old, who separated from his family while they were hiking in the Smokies, got off of the trail, and it had been lost for, actually, for a couple of days. And it was in the news when they, they found the boy. But you can imagine what he was thinking and what he was feeling and the time when he realized he had wandered off, off the path. He was separated from everybody. And everywhere around that he's looking, there are trees. He can't see above them. He can't see around them. Every place he looks essentially looks the same. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know if he will be found. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or whether he's die, or he will die. But he is just knows that he is lost. And he can wander hoping to find something familiar. But there is no guarantee that he is actually in trying to find something familiar, that he's not plunging himself further into lostness and ability to be found. I don't know if you've ever been lost like that while hiking, or perhaps it's been a time you've been in a new city and you're trying to find your way around and you, you just, it just strikes you. This isn't right. I don't know where I am. I don't know where I'm going and how you may feel at that time. But that's really what we need to ask ourselves is how do we feel when we're at that, uh, at that kind of lostness and how do we respond to that kind of lostness? Now, my tendency is to do probably the foolish thing is I keep going hoping to find something that looks familiar. Uh, but I don't know where I am, and I rarely will acknowledge that I don't know where I am. And so, but I always figure eventually I'm going to find a road. Eventually I'm going to find something, even if I don't know what it is. But nevertheless, there, that's the kind of the picture that is, is being presented here of types of people who are just, they're just wandering. They're wandering in a wasteland, something that is, is not home that they can't uh, live in. And the other part of that picture is homelessness. Not only are they lost, but they... They're not at ease. Now, most of us have probably never experienced any sense of homelessness. We may feel displaced at, at different times, but homelessness is rampant all around us. Even in this city, it's, it's somewhat hidden. I'm thankful for uh, the efforts that, that Dick Turner's been to help us as a church to get involved and to identify the homeless and to help them to move from being homeless into having homes and, and functioning. But it, it's, most of us have never probably experienced that sense of homelessness. The closest that I had was a, a point in college, was a difficult point in my life. And I, I share the story. I wrestled with whether I, I would or not, um, simply because it, it could um, um, it reflect poorly, at least for a time, uh, on my family. But uh, it's, that was a, a lifetime ago. But while I was a sophomore in college and was home for uh, the summer, my family lived in Philadelphia. I was in school in Tennessee. My parents were in the midst of early parts of a divorce, and it was an ugly divorce. Uh, they're all ugly, but this was ugly even for ugly. And as they were paired off, and I 
uh, with all the wisdom and lack of it of a 19-year-old, not sure what to make of this. I had a sense of what's right. I had a sense of wrong. All I knew was the world I knew, the values I knew were, uh, were not, not in proper order. And so in my lack of wisdom and responding and not saying the right things, and uh, I, the end result was on several occasions I was booted from our house. And so on three different occasions I had to pack up my car and just leave. And I was too early to go back to Tennessee. I didn't have a place waiting for me there. I wasn't sure where I was going to go, and so I felt that pain of homelessness. Now, the story, in two senses, is minimized by the fact that I had friends who um, lived in Ventnor, New Jersey, in Atlantic City, in a mansion on the beach, and so I just called and went there. Um, <laughs> and so I'd spend my week and weekends there and then come back and, and work, and, and so. And then, again, just because you will have opportunity to meet my family is to realize that that was a lifetime ago. And so things in that sense, in terms of my relationship, has been reconciled and restored. But I share that because I think of, when I think of people that are homeless, this is, and I have a taste of it. It's, where do I go? What do I do? The unrest, the uncertainty. And the picture here is of people who experience that for a, a period of their lives. Swiss psychiatrist Paul Tournier, in a book that he wrote called A Place to Be, claims that a place to belong, a home, is what we all most deeply desire. It's the most basic desire that we have. And yet there are many people who don't have that. They do not have a place to belong. But the promise of Psalm 107 is, tells us is that God provides such a home for his people. You and I may not have experienced that kind of homelessness, but we do need to realize that apart from God, we are spiritually alienated. We are essentially homeless. We are created to be in relationship with him, for him to be the head of our home, and yet we are wandering and we are displaced apart from him. And the people here were experiencing that. They were displaced, and except the promises that they cried out, and the Lord heard their cry, and he gave them the home that they so desperately longed for. And so in the first type of person, the Lord has delivered them. The Lord has brought them in his goodness. He's poured it out. And so the psalmist says, as David says here, he led them, in verse 7, he led them by a straight way. In other words, he just, it wasn't even a difficult way for them. He brought them, and there was an easy path for them till they reached the city to dwell in, which is a picture of, 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 the, of the new heaven, the new earth, the, city, the new Jerusalem. And the response should be, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul. He meets that most basic desire. And the hungry, those who are in need, the hungry soul he fills with good things. There's a second type of people that he talks about here, and he says that there are those who walk in darkness. We pick up in verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and had spurned the counsel of the Most High. And so he bowed their hearts down with hard labor, and they fell down with none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and, into the sh and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children, to the children of man, 
for he shatters the doors of bronze and he cuts in two the bars of iron. The picture here is clearly that of, of a prison. People that are in prison, they are in bondage. Now here in our text, it is people because of, they're in that bondage because of consequences of their own actions, consequences of their own offenses, of their own sin. And so they are in prison. We need to realize that there are people who are in prison as well, not because of any fault in them, but there are people who are in prison for righteousness sake as well, brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. But here we have in view those who are in prison. For whatever reason they're in prison, these people are in prison for uh, their own, uh, own, uh, um, uh, own failings, their, their own sin. And the picture of them being in bondage, but the promise here is that when they have cried out to the Lord, actually even before the promise, it says the Lord is using that. He breaks them with hard labor. As they're in prison, as they're in bondage, the old uh, work pile, the rock pile, the, the, they're, they're laboring, they're doing hard labor, hard time. The misery that they are experiencing is breaking them down until they're willing to cry out to the Lord, not only for mercy, but for deliverance. But and, and so the passage tells us he bows their hearts. He's breaking them in that way until they cry out. And when they cry out, the Lord in his grace, he brings them out of their bondage. And the vision here, he shatters the doors of bronze and the gates of iron. Those things that are the strongest things in keeping people trapped, the Lord just, just smashes them. John Bunyan, the great Puritan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, was also a prisoner, and he was a prisoner for righteousness sake, but he reads these verses and he thinks about them and he said that this verse, these verses are a description of the breaking of the bronze gates and the iron bars of his own closed up heart. So while he's in prison for sake of righteousness, he's looking at this promise and realizing he's in prison, his own heart is in prison and this is the promise of God that he will break through, he will unleash you from the th that which bondages you. And the reason that that is significantly important is, again, while most of us have probably not done time, and I hope most of you don't do time, I hope I don't have to do time for anything, for righteousness or unrighteousness. The reality is many of us are imprisoned, nevertheless, maybe not with, with real iron bars, but we are imprisoned figuratively with our addictions or depression or guilt things that just don't seem to be to let go, things that we don't seem to be able to break through. So they have us. And the promise here, as Bunyan was pointing out, is the thing that has our heart that keeps us feeling that we're in prison. The promise of God, the power of God is at work, and as we cry out to him, as our hearts are bowed, knowing our need of him, that he will break the iron, he will break the bronze. There's nothing that will be able to contend. The gospel is more powerful than anything that has us. So the psalmist here, as he says, as we are set free, our response is, verse 15, is thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, because he does shatter the bronze, and he cuts in two the bars of iron, the things that hold us and contain us. There's a third category of people that we see in here in verses 17 through 22, that some were fools. Now, it's tough to... Tough to improve on Forrest Gump's definition of a fool. Stupid is as stupid does. And that's what we see described here in these verses. Verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed all kinds of food and they drew near the gates of death. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them 
from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and he delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his, his deeds in songs of joy. People he's describing here in this passage were people who were acting foolish, acting in ways of their own wisdom, doing whatever it is that they felt like they were going to do, initially believing that they were either immune or no consequences uh, would come. And the end result is not only sorrow, not only stress and, and tragedy, uh, but we see the, the day-to-day effects. It describes uh, people who just, they, that um, they, they loathed food and, and they were suffering. And again, as I've had opportunity to do counseling in a, in a number of, of venues, and particularly as I work with some perhaps that are uh, involved in substance abuse, that's, that was the first thing that comes to my mind when I, I think of the, the loathing food. The meth addicts and the crack addicts, as they get more and more in the addiction, you find they don't eat. They, they just have no taste for anything. Depression does the same type of thing. People just don't, it, it has them. Whether their depression is from their own guilt or for something that they're not dealing with, but these are people that continue to act in their own wisdom, contrary to what God has called, and the end result is, is suffering and, and the sense of, of losing any touch with anything that is really uh, is beneficial for them. And yet, as they also come to the end of themselves and cry out to the Lord, the great promise is that the Lord delivers them. He delivers them from their distress by sending his word, reminding them of who he is what his promises are. And people who are delivered are to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. And then we have one final one. It's those who are at wit's end, beginning in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. And the picture here at the beginning is, not anything wrong with these people. They're going to work. They're working on the great seas. And actually, they may be amazed as they see the power and the majesty of the Lord through, uh, through, the, through the, the majesty uh, of the seas and uh, that which they may be capturing and, and realizing that they are uh, insignificant and, and God is great. But as the story continues on in, in verse 25, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. And they mounted up to heaven and they went down into the depths and their courage melted away in their, evil, in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. And here's a picture of people, perhaps that they are people that are apart from the Lord and, but not doing what we would consider evil. Perhaps they may even be believers. It can happen to any one of us. That we go through our lives and we may be conscious of certain things that are, are wonderful, bringing attention to the Lord, but in our lives, sometimes storms of life will happen, things that will certainly threaten to undo us, where we melt away, our courage just melts away. We tremble. We don't know what to do. We act in reaction and, and with, in ways that will appear foolishness because we are out of control. 
and trying to regain control, flailing, it may appear that we function like drunken men because we don't have any bearings. And yet the promise of the Lord is that he uses these circumstances at times to bring people to the end of themselves that when people like in this situation cry out to him in his mercy and in his grace, he calms the storms and he, storms and he brings them safely into the port. We're to give thanks to the Lord. Those who are in that circumstance are to give thanks to the Lord. Now, these are four different stories of testimonies of people who have been delivered from the Lord. And the Lord in each one is saying, give thanks. And so one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, do, do these stories define any of us? Or is our story anything like this? Which of these stories reflects our life? We also need to realize that these stories are not intended to be exhaustive. They do create great categories from which people are delivered, whether they are, are people who are, um, as we see at the end, just facing the storms of life and realizing that they're, they're not capable, whether they are people who are foolish, people who are imprisoned, or people who are, who are wandering. These are great categories. But the specifics may not fit you. But as the psalmist is declaring and giving multiple illustrations here, it's not so much to put yourself in the story, but it reminds us, primes the pump for us to be thinking, what is my story? And so what is your story? Because we're told, encouraged, exhorted to tell your story. Now, some of you here may be thinking, well... My story's my story is just kind of just kind of boring, you know. None of these really fit me. I know and love someone with a boring story like that. When Carol and I were dating for a little while, I'd asked her, "What's the worst thing you ever did?" I'm trying to get down past the surface on things here. She said, "When I was five or six, my dad was working in the yard, and I was helping him some." And he told me not to go into the street, not to step off that curb. And so I walked over, and I put my toes over the edge of that curb. And I said, I don't think we can date anymore, because in some, <laughs> some states there's laws against things like that. And by and large, she was telling the truth. That was, uh, th that's, that was the reality. That was the worst that she had done. Now, some of you may have stories similar to that. And, you know, so what are you redeemed from? You know, uh, the threat of a, a car that runs up on the side of a curve. Uh, I, you know, it, it just doesn't seem like that great of a story. But if you fall into that category, you may in one sense have the greatest story of all. Because your story is not really boring. It is a story of a God who, in his grace, has preserved you from your youth, protected you from and restrained you from the foolishness that would cause you or other people harm. It is an awesome picture of a great God. And the mark of a great testimony is not how much attention it brings to you, but how much attention it brings to God and his character, his nature, his love. You may be boring, but your story is not. Your story is important. 
your story is powerful. Your story is glorifying to the Lord as you tell it. Whether it's simple, God has been faithful to me from the very beginning. He gave me godly parents who both loved and nurtured me. I saw wisdom modeled. Or whether you were, you know, somebody on the edges of society. Your story is vitally important, and this passage is an invitation, a declaration that you and I are to be telling our stories. We need to know our stories. But if we also know our stories, this passage is a reminder that we always need to know our God. And as David finishes that, that's exactly what he focuses on. He focuses on two aspects of our God because our testimonies are not about us. They're about God at work in us. And we need to know about our God, and ultimately we need to know how our lives, our stories, fit into the grand narrative of what God is doing. And I, I won't go into great detail, both for time and, and there's not any need. But as we pick up here in verses 33 through 38, and then again 39 through 42, we see two characteristics of God that are important for us to dwell upon, meditate upon, and relate to that God. Because in verse 33, we see the power of our God over all of nature. He turns the river into desert, into desert springs of water, into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns the desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell. And they establish a city to live in it, and they sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. It's a power of God over nature. There is nothing that is too powerful for him. And then we pick up again in verse 39 through verse 42. We see the power of God over princes or government structures. When they were diminished and brought low through the oppression of evil and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad and all the wickedness, uh, the wickedness shuts its mouth. Our God, as David looks at this, the different types of ways that people are delivered, encouraging us to tell our story. He then again reminds us, here is our God. And as we see God and realize his power, as well as the love that we see recurring, even for people who are unworthy of receiving it, over and over again, we are reminded that we live under the protection and in the guidance of a God who is not minimized, by all the powers of the earth or all of the powers of the powerful. God is in control of all things, and he is our God. And so if we feel that we are in bondage, if we feel that we are far from him, we see recurring here, cry out to him. He is faithful. He is powerful. He is good. And then remember what he has delivered you from. Remember what he has delivered you from even within yourself, that you were able to tell your story. Because stories are an act of worship to the Lord. Stories are a means of encouraging others. Stories are a means. Your story is a means of helping people see the reality of the gospel, that they may also be delivered. Stories are able to fortify us in our faith as we are reminded of how God has been faithful to us and to others through time. So very simply, what we are called to do in this psalm is... First, stop and take time to regularly consider where you've been and where you are and where you might have been apart from the grace of God. 
It's called to reflect on what God did to intervene in, in your situation and how he broke through to get your attention and how he delivered you. It's a call for us to give thanks to God as we think about that and to not just be able to tell other people, but actually as in our prayer, in our worship, thank God for what he has done. It's a call for us to learn to tell our story. Spending time with some Native Americans, I've done a fair amount of reading on the different Native American cultures, particularly Cherokee. And there's an old Native American saying that says this, it takes a thousand voices to tell a single story. Peter says it this way. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. It's an encouragement, a New Testament encouragement to say, as you have opportunity, tell your story. If we take the wisdom of the Native Americans uh, story, which is uh, saying it takes a thousand voices, the reality is each of our stories is a little different. But as they come together and people hear, we each paint a portion of the picture of God's redemption of a people who are lost, wandering, in bondage, and alienation from him, his greatness, and his love. We understand more of what God is like, and those who hear our stories have a better understanding of who God is like. He is calling people, as the beginning says, from every, every direction, north, south, east, and west, and they come as they hear our stories. And David ends this psalm simply saying, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. If you're wise, give thought to who God is and how he's delivered you and share your story. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks to you for all that you have done. And pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes that we might remember yet again our own story and how you have delivered us and brought us into your family. For those who may still be wrestling with this, who may be in the midst of the storm or still feeling in bondage, I pray, Lord, that they would hear these promises and realize even in their hardship that you are calling out to them that you will deliver. Father, may we be wise, remember and attend to these things, and share our story for your glory. I pray in the name of Jesus.